All right, if you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Acts. We've been working through this incredible uh, testimony of the New uh, Testament church, the beginning of the church in Acts. We're in chapter 7, and we're working through Stephen's sermon. Stephen, as you know, is the first martyr of the Christian faith. He gave an incredible sermon here in Acts 7, where he works through Abraham, he works through Joseph and Moses, and eventually comes to point us directly to Christ. And so this morning, we're looking at Joseph, a picture of Christ. That's the name of the title for the sermon this morning, Joseph, a picture of Christ. And we're in Acts 7, verses 9 through 16. So we're picking up right here again in the middle of Stephen's sermon. He says this in verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And, jo- and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning. We're continuing to pray for insight into your word. Thank you for the clarity of Stephen's sermon using the examples of Joseph, as we'll see this morning, Abraham, Moses, all pointing to Christ. Thank you that all the molecules and the planets point to Christ. Thank you that all of creation points to Christ. Thank you that all of us as human beings are created in the image of God and that we desire to have a relationship with the risen Christ. And so today, God, I pray that you would shine your glory on us and that you would allow us to see and understand and that we would walk closer with you because of what we learned from this text this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, all of Scripture and all through the Scripture, we see things that point to Jesus. Sometimes it's a clear prophecy, like the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Sometimes it's a a foreshadowing, like the sacrificial system. Sometimes it's a picture, an illustration, or an analogy. And sometimes there's what's called a type. When we talk about a type of Christ in theology, we're talking about a person or an event or even a statement found in the Old Testament that prefigures Jesus. Typology is a special kind of symbolism. We can define a type as a prophetic symbol because all types are representations of something or someone in the future. But more specifically, a type in the Bible is a person, a thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or a thing or an event in the New Testament. For example, the flood of Noah's day in Genesis chapters 6 and 7 is used as a type of baptism mentioned specifically by Peter in 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21. And Peter even uses the word for type or copy or symbol to show the connection between the ark and being spiritually baptized into Christ. The Bible identifies several Old Testament events as types of Christ's redemption, including the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, and the Passover. The Old Testament tabernacle is identified as a type in Hebrews chapter 9. The high priest entrance into the Holy of Holies once a year prefigured the mediation of Christ as our high priest. The veil of the tabernacle is said to be a type of Christ in Hebrews 10, 19 through 20, in that his flesh was torn. So was the veil ripped when he was crucified in order to provide entrance into God's presence for those who are covered by his blood. The whole sacrificial system is seen as a type in Hebrews 9, 19 through 26. The holy things of the Old Testament were dedicated with the blood of an animal sacrifice. These holy things are called the patterns of things in the heavens and figures of the true. 
Hebrews 9 teaches that the Old Testament sacrifices typify Christ's final sacrifice for the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 makes it clear that the Passover is a type of Christ when it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When we say that someone is a type of Christ, we are saying that that person in the Old Testament behaves in a way that corresponds to Christ's character and his actions in the New Testament. I do want to point out, though, that theologians make an important difference between an illustration and a type. They would say that a type is identified as such by the New Testament itself. And when you find correlations between Old Testament stories and the life of Christ, you're simply observing illustrations or pictures, not types. In other words, typology is determined by Scripture. It is God the Holy Spirit who inspired the use of types, while illustrations and pictures and analogies could be said to be the observation and the result of man's studies. So to be clear, theologically, you can't call everything a type if you see an association. You can really only call that which is a type which the New Testament affirms as a type. Otherwise, to be clear, you should say it's an illustration, it's analogy, an analogy, this kind of reminds me of that. And we have to be careful about that because if you're not doing good exegetical work, then you could start seeing Christ in everything and you could start seeing the Bible as a book of metaphors and you're trying to make a lot of associations like a crossword puzzle. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about a picture of Christ with the life of Joseph. Nowhere in the New Testament does the Bible specifically say that Joseph was a type of Christ. However, at the same time, it is undeniable that Joseph pictures Christ in so many ways. For example, both are rejected by their own people. Both became servants. Both are betrayed for silver. Both are falsely accused and face false witnesses. Both attain stations at the right hand of the respective thrones, Joseph at Pharaoh's throne and Christ at God's throne. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, and as you know, Jesus was about the same age when he began his ministry. Both provided for the salvation of the Gentiles. Joseph provided physical salvation in preparing for the famine, while Christ provided for the deeper spiritual salvation of those, as all of us are, in need of him. Joseph married an Egyptian wife, bringing her into the Abrahamic lineage. Christ's relationship with the church is also described in marriage terms, bringing her into the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Both suffered greatly. And through patience and humble obedience, they were exalted greatly by God, who, in abundance, uh, who gave in abundance all things over time. Now, if you think I'm stepping out a little bit into territory that is unknown to you, I just wanted to give a quote from MacArthur's commentary on the book of Acts to show an even greater expositor uh, and exegete what he says about this. Quote, in his historical summation, MacArthur writes, Stephen gives glimpses of Christ. Joseph's life, in many ways, is analogous to Christ. Both were from the nation of Israel. Jesus, like Joseph, was delivered up out of envy. Jesus was condemned to death by the testimony of false witnesses. Joseph was imprisoned because of the false accusations of Potiphar's wife. Just as God freed Jesus from the prison of death and exalted him, so also did he free Joseph from prison and exalt him to his high office. As Joseph was able to deliver his sinful brothers from physical death, so Jesus delivered brothers from spiritual death, close quote. And so what we're saying is that Joseph is not technically a type of Christ, since there is no confirmation of that in the New Testament, but he is an incredible picture. He is an impressive illustration, a definite foreshadowing of what would happen with Jesus. His life and his Christian life have many similarities that should not be overlooked, and Stephen uh, points us out some of these obvious correlations. And so he wants to show the Israelites who are condemning him to death that 
Abraham, Joseph, next week we'll look at Moses, all pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I don't know why you want to persecute and kill me. I'm preaching the same Christ that Moses, Joseph, and Abraham all point us to. And so this morning, we're going to look at three observations that we can make about Joseph as we learn how he did indeed become a picture of Christ. Number one, we're going to see Joseph was rejected by the patriarchs in verse 9. Number two, we'll look at Joseph was raised up and made a ruler in verse 10. And then number three, we'll look at Joseph was revealed to his brothers in verses 11 through 16. Let's start off with number one. Joseph was rejected by the patriarchs. We see that there in verse 9 where Luke writes as Stephen is preaching, he says, and the patriarchs Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. First blank is, the patriarchs were the brothers of Joseph. The patriarchs were the brothers of Joseph. We're taking that again from verse 9. Now, the history of the patriarchs of Israel is quite an interesting story. You remember that Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac married Rebekah and had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright with the bowl of soup. And then he had to escape his wrath and to flee. And he went to Paddan Haram, which is near Haran. And it was there that he took one of Laban's daughters to be his wife. If you remember, Laban tricked Jacob into marrying Leah, his oldest daughter, as was their custom. And then Jacob also received Leah's sister, Rachel, as his wife as well. And if you remember, the sisters had a bitter war of who could produce the most children and give Jacob uh, the most kids. And Leah gave Jacob six sons, and her servant Zilpah gave him two sons. And then Jacob had two sons with Bila, Rachel's servant, And then finally, he had two sons with Rachel herself. And this was a total mess. This was a very dysfunctional family. But one thing is for sure, Jacob favored Rachel over Leah. And therefore, he favored Rachel's sons over Leah's sons. Altogether, there were 12 brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Joseph, and Benjamin, and in that order. Now, when you typically hear somebody referring to patriarchs, you think about the line of men that God used to establish the nation of Israel. So typically, if you just say patriarchs, you're going to probably think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet we see in this context Stephen uses the word patriarchs to specifically refer to Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob's name had also been changed to Israel when he wrestled with the angel. And so we can also think of Jacob's sons as the 12 sons of Israel. And this became a big deal because the 12 sons became leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites were an important tribe because they were to be the priests Judah was the leader of an important tribe because from his progeny would come the Lion of Judah, which is a reference to Jesus, the Messiah. Joseph gave way to two tribes with his two sons, were Ephraim and Manasseh. And so when the Israelites conquered Canaan and divided the land uh, amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, as we commonly call them, the tribe of Levi did not receive any land because they were to serve as priests. And then Joseph's tribe was split into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And that's how the land was distributed. All the, land, all the tribes crossed to the west of the River Jordan, except for Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, who were to settle on the east side of the Jordan. There you go. You have had your history lesson on the patriarchs. And what we're saying is, in this context, he's referring specifically to those 12 brothers And there were special promises that were given to all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to his 12 sons. In fact, Paul says in Romans 15, verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. 
And so when Paul is saying that the promise is given to the patriarchs, he's referring to the Abrahamic covenant. He's also referring to the promise of salvation, that there would be a universal blessing, and that would include the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then that line goes on through Judah to come to Christ, and yet there was general blessings that the nation of Israel would still receive. And so in a sense, Stephen is saying there is a special promise that was made to the patriarchs, and that promise ultimately was going to be salvation in a Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's move on and look at the second point here. The patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, still there in verse 9, where it says, and, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him to Egypt. And so part of the problem of uh, his brother's jealousy was the fact that Joseph was the favored son. Now turn back with me, if you will, for the rest of the sermon. We're really going to be a lot in Genesis. So turn with me to Genesis 37 as we kind of track through what's going on here in Acts 7 and matching it up with the story that Stephen is telling. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, it says, Now Israel, that would be Jacob, remember whose name was changed to Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. I mean, how would you feel if you had 11 brothers and your dad picked one to dote on all the time? Joseph, you're a good boy. Joseph, I love you so much. Joseph, you did a great job at school today. Joseph, what do you want for Christmas? Joseph, come over here and sit with Daddy. Joseph, I made you a robe of many colors, which is very expensive because I love you. And your brothers can just wear camel hair. I mean, how would you feel if you were in that situation? Obviously, something in us would kind of rile up a little bit and say, I don't know why this is happening. And Joseph wasn't really helping with this either. He had a couple of dreams. Genesis 37, you're already there. Look at verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. How come? Well, let's look at the content of these dreams. Verse 6, he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Again, our kids have dreams all the time. Sometimes it's fun on the way to schools. I take the kids in the morning. They'll be like, hey, dad, I had this dream last night. You know, and they just tell some wacko off the wall dream. And I'm just like, oh, well, that's, that's really cool. And I'm like, are my kids going nuts? You know, they have these dreams all the time. And how would you feel though if Joseph, oh, I had a dream and all of you bowed down to me. That was my dream. You know, that's kind of what he's saying. And we don't know the attitude he had, but it does seem like it was maybe there's a little bit of a way that just made it worse. You know what I'm saying? I mean, your sibling, if they came to you and said, I, I dreamed that all of your sheaves bowed down to me. I mean, that sounds like VeggieTales, right? And this is where VeggieTales started, did you know? Uh, so anyway, there, he's, having, he's relating it to him. And then he has a second dream, and he tells him about that one in verse 9. Then he dreamed about another dream and told his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. This is like saying the whole universe revolves around me, not around the sun or the moon or the stars, but you all, and even mommy and daddy, maybe, maybe even could be inferred here, they're all bowing down to me. Everybody's going to bow down to me. And so the brothers had heard enough, and they had become envious of Joseph. And this is exactly how the Jewish leaders felt about Jesus. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, John 12, verses 18 and 19 says, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So Joseph's brothers didn't like him because of the wonderful dreams he was having. Jesus' brothers, his fellow, fellow Jewish people, didn't like him because he's doing incredible miracles. Everybody's excited about it, and they're becoming envious in the same way. In fact, Pilate says this of the Jews in Matthew 27, 18, for he knew that it was out of envy 
that they delivered him up. Envy is a murderer. Jealousy makes you do stupid things. Covetousness can lead to killing. This was true of Cain. This was true of King Herod. And this is true of the Jewish leaders. Make sure that it's not true of you this morning. Learn to rejoice with those who rejoice and learn to honor the Lord and others that God is using to accomplish his purposes. We could take a page from the book of John the Baptist who would say, he must increase and I must decrease. So what happened in our story with Jacob and his 12 sons? Well, the next blank says, the patriarchs persecuted Joseph. And that's the point that Stephen's trying to get to there at the end of verse 9. They sold him into slavery. This is a form of persecution. They threw Joseph into a pit, and then they sold him into slavery. And they told their father that Joseph had been eaten by some wild animal. The patriarchs sold Joseph to the Midianites, who in return sold Joseph to Potiphar in Egypt. And Joseph was falsely accused if you remember the story, by Potiphar's wife. And so Joseph then spent the next several years in prison. And surely the Jews saw the analogy here. The Jews uh, saw what maybe Stephen was saying, that they were Jesus' own people. They were his brothers, in a sense, who had arrested Jesus by night. They had thrown him into jail. They had had illegal trials throughout the night. They had spit in his face. They had pulled out portions of his beard. They had flogged him with a whip. They had placed a crown of thorns upon his head, a crown, a, 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 a crown of thorns around his head. They had mocked him. They had ridiculed him, and they had said false things about him. There, there is no doubt that Stephen is reciting this history of Joseph as an analogy of what happened to Jesus. The Jewish leaders were treating Jesus like the patriarchs treated Joseph. They treated him with envy. They treated him with contempt. They wanted to kill him. They lied about what happened to him. They persecuted the Lord of glory. And God forbid that you or I would ever treat Jesus or anyone who faithfully teaches his word or walks in obedience like this, that we would treat them in the same way. But there is hope and encouragement given in this last part of verse 9 here. We're talking about they're envious and they're jealous and they persecuted him. But notice at the end of verse 9 it says, but God was with him. When Joseph was sold into slavery, Genesis 39 verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. When Joseph was put into prison, Genesis 39 Verse 21 says, but the Lord was with Joseph, and he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Genesis chapter 39, verse 23 says, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And just as the Lord was with Joseph throughout all of his trials, so will the Lord be with you throughout all of your trials. We know that God never left Jesus' side except for that one moment when he said, of course, why have you forsaken me so that the penalty of sin could appropriately be dealt with? But we know that God does not abandon his own. He does not leave you or forsake you. His presence in suffering is often regarded as more precious than his presence during peace. He knows your hurt and he knows your pain and he attends to your every need. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And I just love how in this story about Joseph, even though it was going bad for him, gets sold into slavery, you know, thrown in the pit, sold into slavery, goes to Potiphar's house, falsely accused, goes to prison, interprets a couple of dreams, still doesn't get out yet. And it's just like, man, his stock is going down. And then all of a sudden, we see God lift him up. 
And that leads us to our second observation, if you will, in verse 10 here. We're looking now at Joseph was raised up and made a ruler. Verse 10, and it says, and God was with him, into verse 9, verse 10, and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. And so here we see that Joseph was rescued from his afflictions. He was rescued from his afflictions. As Joseph spent years in prison, he had the opportunity to interpret two dreams. One was to a baker, and the other was to Pharaoh's cupbearer. Two years later, Pharaoh had a dream about seven plump cows and seven lean cows. And Pharaoh also dreamed of seven ears of corn growing on one stalk that were full and good. And then about seven ears of corn that were withered, blighted, and thin. And there was no one who could interpret these dreams to to, to Pharaoh except Joseph. And Joseph talked about how there would be seven profitable years with bountiful crops and then seven years of famine where there would be no food. And then we read, if you'll turn to Genesis 41, 33, we read how Joseph says, as he's interpreting these dreams to Pharaoh, um, it says, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that they are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Well, because of this incredible insight that God gave to Joseph, and because of Joseph's confidence and his poise in God's revelation, and because God was now turning the tables in Joseph's life to fulfill his greater plan, we see that Joseph was rescued from his afflictions. Psalm 18, verse 17, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Psalm 34, verse 4 says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Just reminders that we serve a God who rescues his people, whether it be David, whether it be Joseph, whether it be Stephen in this midst, God's going to rescue him. And we'll see how he's going to rescue Stephen by just taking him right up into heaven. But he is a rescuer for his people. He does this for Joseph. And of course, we're going to see how he does that for Christ as well at the resurrection. And so not only do we see this, but we, our next blank says that Joseph received favor and wisdom. He receives favor and wisdom here in verse 10, which is correlating back to Genesis 41, verses 37 through 40. This This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne, I will be greater than you." And so here we see again that Pharaoh recognizes that Joseph has been given superior knowledge from on high. He's been given superior favor, superior discernment, superior wisdom. This can only come from God. There is no man on earth at that time who had the same spirit of God reigning in his heart that Joseph had received this favor and this wisdom from God. Proverbs 2, verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 16, 16, How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. I'm just saying to you, if I was Joseph, I'd much rather have the wisdom that God was giving him than all the riches of glory. And he's about to get it, by the way. He's about to say, hey, you're now going to be second command. But I just want you to notice that what's important to Joseph is to have a relationship with God. What's important to Joseph is to seek his God. And whether you're in the middle of the prison, in the middle of persecution, in the middle of the toughest time in your life, you're richer if you have wisdom given to you from God than you would ever be if you were placed in any position. And yet this is exactly what God chose to do with him. 
That which was humbled will now be exalted. And we see that Joseph, your next blank says, ruled over all Egypt. He ruled over all Egypt there again in verse 10. Back in Genesis 41, 41 through 43, we read, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. There is no doubt, again, that this punishment and imprisonment which happened to Joseph all started because of his envious brothers. There is no doubt that the punishment and persecution that Jesus faced was all because of his envious Jewish brothers. But just as God highly exalted Joseph and set him up to rule over Egypt... We can't help but to think about Philippians 2, how Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Joseph was humbled, and then he was exalted. And in an infinitely greater way, Jesus was humbled, and he was exalted. Joseph went from being in prison to the ruler over Egypt. Jesus went from being crucified to being raised from the dead. They were to bow the knee to Joseph all over the land of Egypt, and we are all to bow before Jesus over the whole world. God used Pharaoh to exalt Joseph. God himself exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And so we have seen that Joseph was rejected by the patriarchs. We have seen that Joseph was raised up and made a ruler. And now third, we're going to see Joseph was revealed to his brothers. He is revealed to his brothers. Your next blank says the famine in the land. The famine in the land, verses 11 and 12. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. Verses 11 and 12 are pointing us back to Genesis 41, 54 to 57, where it says this, And there were seven years of famine. They began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So we see here, this was a significant famine. This famine was widespread. This famine was going to last for seven years. Anyone in the surrounding area who wanted to eat or stay alive, they were going to have to come to Egypt to buy grain for bread. And so then we read in Genesis 42, 1 through 5, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So in this passage, we're reading again about how Jacob knew that they were going to have to do something to survive. 
As the dad, he's like, hey, you can't just sit here and look at each other and whine about the problem. I've heard there's bread in Egypt. We've got to go to Egypt so that we can survive. And so Jacob sent 10 of his sons. He had already lost Joseph, and he didn't want to lose uh, Benjamin. So he sent his other 10 sons to Egypt to buy grain. I believe that the analogy is clear. Again, this is not a type We're just making some associations, but I would say, based on that in my own heart and observation, that there is only one place that you can truly buy bread. There is only one place that you can go in order to stay alive and not to die. There is only one who had an abundance, and all of this points us to Christ. There is salvation found in no one else Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. John 20, verse 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I believe that when we look at the story of Joseph, we see again God's protection and his provision for his people to sustain them so that Christ would come. And so the idea here is just as there was only one place they could go in order to keep their lives, there is only one place that you could go this morning to keep your life. There is only one bread of heaven that will sustain you and that will provide for you, and his name is Jesus Christ Let me invite you to him this morning, that this morning if you find yourself in a spiritual famine, that your life is filled with envy and sin, that you don't know what to do, you're looking around at one another and you're like, I don't know what to do next, turn to Christ. Come to him and he will by no means cast you out. There is plenty of bread for you. The bread of heaven, Christ is offered to you. He's the only one who can save your soul from hell. Only he can give you eternal life, and only he can put your life back together again. And then we see in verses 13 and 14, back here in Acts 7, the forgiveness that was offered, the forgiveness that was offered, it says, and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. We read about this incredible, monumental, earth-shattering, life-changing forgiveness that was offered back in Genesis chapter 45. Just think about all that Joseph had went through, and we don't have time to talk about all that happened in the first visit, but Joseph, they didn't recognize Joseph. Joseph uh, sent them back to bring Benjamin, and he put silver, if you remember, in the neck of their sacks of grain in order to kind of test them to see whether or not they were going to uh, maybe do something, uh, you know, sinful or, they, or if they had changed. There's a couple of things going on there. But finally, on the second visit, please notice this didn't happen on the first visit, but on the second visit. There's a lot of, a lot of commentaries that would say, hey, there's an analogy here that when Jesus came at his first incarnation, he was not fully revealed to the nation. But when Jesus comes back on his second uh, re- return, all of Israel will indeed be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. So again, I, I don't want to go too far into it all because um, you got to be careful, but I'm just saying it would be wrong for us not to enjoy gleaning some observations in a way that brings richness to the history of Israel at the same time pointing us to Christ. And certainly this uh, story of forgiveness is an incredible moment. It was this moment that J- Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So there's some type of divine revelation. They didn't figure it out on their own. They didn't be like, oh, that's Joseph. Joseph had to get everybody to leave the room and he revealed himself to his people. He, he revealed himself to, uh, to his family. He, he could not hold it back anymore. Again, Genesis 45, verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself before all of those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. They couldn't believe it. 
They couldn't believe that Joseph was right there. All the dreams, all the prophecies that had been given are now coming true, and they're just kind of taking it in. And they might be afraid about what Joseph could do to them now that he's in a place of power. But verse 4 says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. Notice, while they initially were to eat at a different table, he said, Hey, come, come near. Come into my presence. Come near to me. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors, so that it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. What an incredible story where Joseph is saying, well, he doesn't use these exact words, but he's saying, I forgive you, and I love you. And he's even saying to them, don't be too hard on yourselves. That one kind of always gets to me, because I'd be like, don't you feel so bad right now? <laughs> you know, that's what I would want to say, just one little dig, you know. Uh, maybe he did that already when he had them arrested and talked about keeping, you remember, one of the brothers back and all that stuff. But in this place, in this place, so he's like, I forgive you, and I love you. And I'm revealing myself to you. And guess what? God had a purpose in it. He had a plan in it. In fact, ultimately, it wasn't you. It was God brought this about. What, what incredible sovereignty to realize that God is in control even of the sinful acts of men. And that he's bringing that about all for his glory. And Joseph clearly does not hold this sin against his brothers. He has forgiven them. He is extending them an olive branch. He is reaching out to them in love. He is giving them God's perspective. And this is the same thing Joseph says a couple of chapters later in chapter 50, that famous verse, verse 20, Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about many people who should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph is saying again, I forgive you. Stephen is preaching this to the Jews. Think about it. The implications of the message could be God will forgive you too. Joseph forgave his brothers. I know you murdered the king of glory. He died on a cross. He was raised from the dead. You know that he was raised from the dead, but you sent out that lie to say that the disciples stole the body. But just think, a lot of these core Pharisees, they knew it was true. And he's saying, and he'll forgive you. Just like Joseph forgave his brothers, he will forgive you. He will extend to you an olive branch. You do have another opportunity. And just come to him, he's saying, Stephen inferring in the sermon, just come to him with a broken heart. Just come and confess that what you did was wrong. Just come clean about what you did and and how you saw it. And now that you see the beauty of the extension of grace that Joseph has offered to his brothers, please know that's the same grace that God offers to you. Don't be afraid. Come near Come, taste and see that our God is a forgiving God. It's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. You can just hear Stephen pleading this kind of inference that maybe the Jews would get and understand that God took the rejection of Joseph and made it into an instrument of worldwide salvation. And this is exactly what God did through Jesus at Calvary. The cross represents the greatest tragedy known to man. That his own people would reject him and accuse him and have him killed. But at the same time, the cross is a fulfillment of salvation to provide salvation for anyone in the world who would repent and believe. The whole world is in a spiritual famine. There's bread in one place and you've got to come to Christ. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 makes that so clear. And you who were dead... In your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So not only is this true with salvation, it's true of sanctification as well. 
Just like God extends us a second chance, if you will, to become a a Christian, to become saved. He's extending again an olive branch to Israel. You've been offered the gospel time and time again. But also, if you are a Christian this morning and you are a believer, we understand it's the same grace that he offers to us every moment of every day, no matter what you're facing, no matter what difficulties you're in. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 10 says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. And that's what we got to get to that point where we can just say, you know what, this is a hard time. This is a difficult time, but God is so good. He's teaching me and he's growing me and the promises that he's made to me through scripture are still yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though I've messed up and I've made a mess of my life, I can come back to him again and again because he still extends to me grace and he offers forgiveness through Christ. Could you, could you do this? Even if you were on the other side of the equation, could you forgive somebody like Joseph did when he looked at his brothers and just said, I love you. I want to have close, intimate relationship with you. You know, I'm afraid that so many of us will say, well, I forgive you, but I don't want you in my house. Right? I'm mean, just going to be real honest here. Well, I know I've got to forgive because the Bible says it, but I don't want to have a close relationship. Joseph is like, I forgive you. Come live with me. In fact, all 75 of you, come on over. Come on over, we're going to have one big family reunion. And most of us hate family reunions. <laughs> I mean, you, you like them, but you don't. You know what I mean? But he's just like, hey, come on, we're going to bring you all together, all the stuff, all the drama that's happened. And he said, hey, it's all good. God's done all of this to provide for you in a much beautiful, more beautiful way. Christ, in all of his glory, spiritually, is bringing us into a community of the church into a family where we could come together and commune together and we're living against the outer parts of the world and yet we have an opportunity to gather to have rich fellowship. And then let's not miss the last couple of verses here, another important fulfillment of prophecy, the faithful return to the promised land. Verses 15 and 16, the faithful return to the promised land. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, which is in Israel, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought with a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. We're saying here the faithful return to the promised land. Now, when Jacob came to Egypt, and he lived there with Joseph in his older age, and their other son, his other sons, they all came there. If you remember, they lived and were given the best part of the land of Egypt in Goshen, where they lived and enjoyed that for many years. And Jacob died in Egypt, but before he died, look at Genesis 47, 29 and 30. Before Jacob died, he made Joseph make him a promise. And what he made him promise was this, Genesis 47, 29. And when the time drew near that Israel, that's Jacob, When Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. Years later, Joseph died in Egypt as well. But before Joseph died, he made the sons of Israel make him a promise. Turn to Genesis 50, verse 25. We're going to see like father, like son, Joseph makes his son make that same promise. Genesis 50, 20. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so guess what happened? 400 years later, during the great exodus... So as you remember, the 75 people became about 2 million people. They were in Israel for 400 plus years as prisoners. And then the great exodus of Exodus 13, 19, it says, finally the 10 plagues happen. Pharaoh says, you you can take the people. Moses is going to take the people and off they go. Moses, Exodus 13, 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones with you from here. And so they take Joseph's bones, and it's understood here that it would have been Joseph and Jacob. That's just an inference that we're making. And then we learn after the conquest, 40 years in the wilderness, 
Then there's the conquest. They, you know, go across the Jordan. They're now living in Israel. And at the end of Joshua 24, 32, it says, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in a piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Now, I just think that's cool because neither Jacob nor Joseph ever lost sight of the supreme truth that God's promises would be fulfilled to his people. And if God told Abraham that he had a land for his sons to dwell in, then God was going to fulfill it. And it was never meant to be fulfilled in Egypt. That was just a parenthesis of those 400 years, but Jacob and Joseph knew, no, there's still a land that God's promised us, and when you guys get back to that land, you better dig up our bones and take us with you. They're just kind of reminding the Israelites, even in that moment, this is not your home. This is a time of exile for you in Egypt, but you've got to get back to the promised land. And this is what God was going to do, and God fulfilled that promise. And it was important for Jacob and Joseph, so much so that they insisted that their bones be brought back to the land of Israel. We're just saying here, God is faithful to keep his promises. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We see an incredible continuation of how that story brought them back to the promised land. Maybe in the take-home section of your notes there as we wrap up this morning, you could ask yourself and discuss these questions, but how can the similarities we see between Joseph and Jesus encourage you in what you're going through today? So many things to think about, their humiliation, their exaltation, their persecution, their deliverance, their faithfulness. How can looking at those similarities encourage you in whatever you're facing today? Number two, has God ever rescued you out of what seemed to be a hopeless situation and then placed you into a position of influence? Now, again, you might read that question and be like, nope, that hasn't happened to me. Well, how about when he saved you? (laughs) How about that? That's because that's all that really matters. When he saved you, he's now given you an opportunity to influence others for the gospel. Number three, would you ever be able to forgive someone if they did to you what the patriarchs did to Joseph? Certainly, we could be challenged with that this morning. And the only way that you could ever forgive them is by looking to Christ by looking to the bread of heaven, by realizing there's a famine in each and every heart and only Christ can save you, only Christ can sustain you, only Christ can get you through, come to him this morning and he will by no means cast you out. As we close in prayer and as we have our final song, there'll be a few people standing by that back door and if you'd like to respond to this invitation to come to Christ this morning, we'd love to talk with you and encourage you how to put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for allowing us to span through large uh, sections of Genesis as we've reviewed some of Joseph's history and just thank you for some of the rich comparisons that we see with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, it's undeniable that there's things that we need to think about and learn and associate. And yet at the same time, Lord, we want to be faithful and just realizing this, this story was about just continuing your faithfulness to your people, which would ultimately be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would be with those of us who are maybe facing persecution right now difficulty right now, broken families, broken relationships right now, that somehow this story would just encourage us and challenge us to just repent, to come clean with our own pride and our own, our own issues that we've maybe brought to the situation, and then to seek forgiveness and to grant forgiveness and to come together in, in a way that would honor you and please you. God, I pray that you would just be exalted in our church as we want to have those kinds of relationships that we could love and serve one another. Thank you for how Joseph truly is an incredible picture of Christ. May we dwell on these things and may we be encouraged and enriched in our hearts and in our walk with you as we try to apply and put into practice what we've learned this morning throughout this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.